Hi, I'm Sean, and this is the Clarinet Podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Now, I have to say that today's guest, this is his third time returning to the show, and of course, his name is Stanley Drucker, and he was the principal clarinetist of the New York Philharmonic for many years and needs no introduction to the clarinet community. But I will say that when I first started the show, and you know, when I was first starting my career even in university, I had a CD of the John Carigliano Clarinet Concerto by Stanley Drucker. And I, I remember one day holding that in university. I was down in this little basement apartment where I lived and I held it in my hands and I looked at it and I was like, man, it'd be so cool to one day meet Stanley and, and have him sign this. And although I never did have him sign my particular CD, maybe I'll try this summer at Clarinet Fest, but he has now signed and sent me copies of his Heritage Collection, the, the first version and now the second version. And I was so amazed to not only get to meet him a few times, but also get to chat with him now three times on the show. So it's just been a total dream come true. But I was really surprised recently when, when Jerry Bunky sent me the latest version of the CD. And not only did it have his signature and was absolutely great music again, but they actually included me and and this, you know, my work, I think, with the podcast here as being a contributor as far as um, in the liner notes of the CD. So what a mind-blowing moment to have my name appear alongside this stellar amazing musician of the 20th century. So today's episode is a musical tour of these amazing CDs, discs six and seven of the Heritage Collection. And if you haven't already purchased a copy of the original collection or this collection, there's the opportunity to buy a signed copy at digitalforce.com. Just be sure to reference when you check out that you're purchasing and you're a clarinet listener and you'll receive a signed copy. And again, this is thank you so much to Jerry Bunky and Digital Force. So we're gonna have some great musical examples today from Debussy, uh, Nielsen, Corigliano, and anymore and I really hope that you enjoy today's special episode. One thing before we get started, I want to thank those who support the show on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. If you want access to an ad-free extended version of the show, you can do this at clarinet.com slash subscribe. But here's a little treat. Today I decided to throw in the lightning round so everyone will have access, but if you enjoy it, please consider helping the show from as little as $1 per month at clarinet.com slash subscribe. Also, I just want to mention there's going to be a giveaway on the YouTube channel of a very secret surprise mystery box from Bakun. I'll be unboxing it at 2,500 subscribers and giving it away at 10,000 subscribers. Maybe it's a mouthpiece, maybe it's a clarinet, we don't know yet. Check it out at youtube.com slash clarinet and subscribe today. Thanks so much for listening and thank you also to our sponsors for helping make the show possible. Imagine a reed that offers complex performance and sound, but is washable, recyclable, consistent, doesn't require moistening, and lasts for months instead of days. It's all possible with Leger Reeds, the world's leading synthetic reed brand, made right here in Canada. Legere reeds are used exclusively by some of the world's greatest clarinetists, including Eddie Daniels, Corrado Giuffredi, David Schifrin, and many others. And now, it's your turn. Experience Legere reeds at your local music store, or by heading to legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E dot com. Encoda is a new app that lets you stream, practice, and perform tens of thousands of music scores. It's kind of like Netflix, but for music. Get a free trial today. Just search for Encoda on your device's app store. That's Encoda, N-K-O-D-A. Take your clarinet to the next level with a new mouthpiece, barrel, or bell from Bakun Musical Services. With free shipping to the United States and Canada, 14-day easy returns, and expert advice, you can be sure that you're making the best choice for your musical needs. After all, the best time to upgrade your clarinet was yesterday, but the second best time is today. Use code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com and save 10% on your next accessory purchase. That's code CLARINET at bakunmusical.com. So I'm back on the line here today with Stanley Drucker, who is making his third appearance on the Clarinet Podcast, the most returns by a guest ever. I absolutely love that even after turning 90 years old, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. 
you are still an active member of the clarinet community. Is there a plan to actually retire and and enjoy your... I don't think so. I think it's uh, it's just going to keep going as long as I can go and, 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 and have a good time with it. I'm not as busy as I used to be, but I'm still uh, doing things and uh, I'm playing with a, an orchestra, uh, you know, in a concert in Carnegie Hall in the middle of this month of a lot of my old colleagues, actually. And, uh, and I'm playing at the Buffet uh, Showroom in New York, uh, with my pianist, we'll sort of meet people, and and I'm going to do the Brahms for Second Sonata and the Bernstein Sonata at that event. Well, I love it that at 90 you're still playing and uh, and, and able to enjoy the music and, and interact still with colleagues from over the years. And do you think that's a characteristic of the great masters? It, there, there's no such thing as retirement. It's always a part of you. If you can do it, you, you do it. Otherwise. You, you become part of the audience. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So speaking of audience, one reason that we are chatting today is that you have another collection of uh, CDs out. There's the Heritage Collection from the Vaults, Disc 6 and 7, for which I am able to enjoy as an audience member, as, as such, I guess, through headphones, to listen to this new disc set. So what is the nature of adding two additional discs to the Heritage Collection that was released two years ago? There are some uh, great performances, actually, uh, of, of various people with me, uh, and a lot of them were uh, originally uh, recordings made uh, on, on a real concert stage or in a real recording studio as opposed to playing in a, in a small venue uh, uh, and being recorded with a portable uh, uh, recorder, you know, it's those are historic too, but uh, on here are some of my old recordings. Uh, and there is also a, a couple of performances that were live on here. I'd say one of the highlights for me was the, the Spohr uh, Sixth German Leader and the, the Gordon Jacob uh, Three Songs and the, uh, the Arthur Bliss Two Nursery Rhymes with soprano Judith Blagan, who was a, a Metropolitan Opera star. And uh, in the Spohr... Uh, accompanied by her sister on piano. The sound of the work, uh, the hall, it was a wonderful hall where, where it was performed. It just, uh, you know, sounded right. And having her sing those songs are just incredible. There's so much on this this set uh, by way of um, recorded music that was either live or recorded in the same hall just after the live performances. This style of recording, of course, is very common, and it captures kind of the live energy to do them in, in one sort of extended take. 
Yes, they call it live recording, but actually, you know, it, it really is a performance, uh, I would say. Yeah, but over time, this seemed to have changed. Like orchestras nowadays, or individual players especially, not to mention other types of ensembles, they'll normally have a really sort of produced kind of recording. Do you think that that loses some of the energy of these sort of live from the floor takes? Well, you know, no matter how live the performances they are uh, the they still sometimes there there are problems occur they have to do some inserts perhaps and fixes but but uh, people listen to to recordings in a different manner today also in the in the golden years of hi-fi it doesn't exist anymore and now people are listening on very tiny devices just with with headphones or or earbuds uh, but I find that, you know, if you, if you were going to listen to a Mahler symphony, which is, you know, very long, uh, how many people are going to sit for that with earbuds? It's a little difficult. You, you can't relax in an easy chair and listen to uh, the big sound and, uh, and the murmuring sounds of a Mahler symphony. Would that have been your preferred way to listen back in those days, to get a big chair in a big room with big speakers and sit back? Sure, that's that. It was the style, you know, but... Every era has its own devices and everything is called progress, right? Yeah, you know, it is interesting because I feel like in this age of three-minute songs that are always on kind of shuffle on various types of streaming software, it's almost harder to find music that you want to listen to. And I even myself struggle to have the patience sometimes to listen through really long works. And uh, it it makes me wonder what it was like in the past. And I also was going to ask you, this would be a great time, You grew up in the 30s, surrounded by the music of Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw. What was that like? I I grew up in the late 30s. Uh, I was born in 29, and uh, the big band was the thing. And and certainly the the clarinet-playing leaders like Woody Herman and Artie Shaw and and Jimmy Dorsey, you got to know their, their playing they got to know their their sound, their trademark, you know. I I would say it was an exciting, a very rich time uh, for instruments uh, per se. Uh, you know, band instruments were so popular, and uh, the guitar hadn't hadn't reared its head yet. Well, I guess that's my my question is like for me, I I can think of kids everywhere who want to go grab a cool guitar and you know play with their friend in the garage. But what was it like when the cool instrument to be slinging around was a clarinet? Well, (laughs) (laughs) it's still cool. Don't get me wrong, but (laughs) it had its own excitements, you know, uh, for that time. But certainly uh, instrumental music was was a big, big deal, actually. There's a piece on here that was recorded. We talked a little bit about the production of, of live recordings. The Bartok contrast on here was recorded with just a single mic in the middle of the room. And this to me is amazing because it sounded so much richer than other recordings which I've heard even recently. One of my very early, you know, professional recording, and it was with with Robert Mann, who was the founding member of the uh, the Juilliard String Quartet, and and Leonid Hambro, who was uh, the official pianist of the Philharmonic, uh, also was well known as a as a soloist, a wonderful musician, and. and uh, the only recording that existed at the time was the original one with uh, Benny Goodman, Joseph Sigety, and the composer. That was uh, the, the only performance I heard of that piece, you know, uh, prior to uh, rec- recording that. It was very exciting to do a piece like that. It was very different, you know. Uh, 
It was done at a high school in New York, below the stage, on the on the actual floor of the hall, near the stage, uh, and uh, with the three instruments uh, and the single microphone. The engineer was the son of, of the composer, Bela Bartok, Peter Bartok. And he had a company at the time called Bartok Records. And he did an awful lot of his father's music. They were all on uh, LPs. So were these recordings then all transferred from the LPs to the CD format? Yes, he, he had that done much later. I guess when he, uh, he got enough money to do it. And he was very avid with, you know, with the music of his father. And, you know, he, he, he re- recorded the, the quartets and, and, and all of these other pieces. Uh, I think he revised one score, that maybe for the Wooden Prince. I, I'm not sure if I remember that rightly. Well, the, the capture is just amazing. As I was looking through these, I was wondering, um, because on the first five-disc collection, some of them, as you say, were sort of handheld recorders and in smaller spaces. And I was wondering what the nature of these would be. And I just remember being shocked as I listened through by the audio quality. It was very, very high. And there's a comment in the in the liner notes about being able to hear the rosin scraping against the, the strings. And it's true, you can hear all that stuff. classic recordings uh, also here you know pieces like the Nielsen concerto and the Debussy Rhapsody with Bernstein conducting the Philharmonic that was at Carnegie Hall actually those performances let's talk about that Nielsen for a second because I didn't realize but this piece was played about four times in one week and that was just live and then the recording came after those concerts one day so would you describe that for me that must have been so intimidating it sort of was a very busy group of days. Uh, the recording took place on the stage in the same positioning as the live performances. So it was, in actuality, a, a full performance on the stage. Very lucky uh, with, with the, uh, the setup. They had everything set just right for that, I think. So how many times that week did you end up playing the piece then? Well, I did four performances and, and then the recording, probably over a 10-day period. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of playing. And, and so what was it like in those days recording these kind of pieces? I mean, did they have mics set up for everyone or just two overhead? Or Usually the recording company, uh, you know, they, they knew the venue and they knew how to set those things. And they were 
you know, there was an awful lot of things done there. A lo lo loads of recordings were made in, in the that Philharmonic Hall, as, as it was originally called. Prior to that, uh, we, we used to record also in Carnegie Hall in the, before they built the Lincoln Center. Through that period and later, they used a couple of different venues around New York. One of them was Manhattan Center. There, there were ballrooms in there, and one of those ballrooms was, I think it was on the seventh floor, huge ballroom, and that's where a lot of recordings were made. And another was, was a converted church on 30th Street and 3rd Avenue, uh, and that was a, a recording studio. And they even in early, one of the early recordings was done in the St. George Hotel in Brooklyn. One of them is a cl classic recording of, of the Rite of Spring with Bernstein. So in these days, too, it sounds like then they had dedicated engineers that basically were full-time on site then. Is that true? The companies had, had you know, producers and, and audio people that, that were involved, you know, for, for these groups of works. But they did a lot of... of complete works by a single composer you know they might do all the four symphonies of schumann for instance or or the the seven symphonies of sibelius you know they, it wasn't just an, an individual symphony yeah. yeah this was popular to sort of record box sets of the various composers Boulez did recordings of uh, the complete uh, mother goose the complete uh, miraculous mandarin not just the suite and when the Daphnis and Chloe, it was complete, not just part one and part two. There was music in between. So this might be kind of an odd question, but I think it comes from my perspective as a 21st century musician. But I imagine that an artist of your level would have some sort of control over which takes were used in the event that takes were used. But then another part of me says that, well, maybe your job as a clarinetist of that level is to make it so that there's such consistency that you know, you don't have to worry about that. So did you have any artistic say over takes if they were required or which cuts to use? I think if any if anything had to be done over in any piece, it, it was very obvious what had to be done over. But uh, there, there are always uh, blips or something uh, that isn't uh, according to dietary laws. You know, things have to be just right. But we were lucky with uh, with uh, the Nielsen particularly. We were very lucky with uh, they, I didn't have to do anything over, which was amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. A lot of people ask about this Nielsen and the fact that it was recorded in one take, but I feel like maybe something that's been missed here that I've just realized is, what was the preparation like? I mean, how did you put in the work in order to come out with a result like that that was just so flawless? 
you know, I was part of a, a group of rehearsals before the first of the four performances. Nobody got a complete rehearsal. Not a, The piece didn't warrant a full rehearsal. So I might have a half an hour or 40 minutes in one rehearsal and 20 minutes in another rehearsal and so forth. In those days, they had four rehearsals a week. Normally, sometimes more if the work was, you know, big work like Wozzeck or, or some kind of a crazy piece. But uh, at the fourth rehearsal, generally you got to play it, you know, without stop. But uh, I would say you, you had it in your hands by that point. I would say that the most important thing was having a good read. That's one thing. No such thing as a perfect read, but uh, a read might be great one day and not the next. We still use cane reads for the most part, and they do change. Read work it never stopped. Probably the biggest part of oboe players and bassoon players also. So you're saying you were at the hall for four rehearsals a week and two, three, four concerts a week. Always had at least three, but mostly it was four concerts a week. So four rehearsals, four concerts. We can't forget that you were on the train, I think, for an hour each way. That's right. So where did you do all your practicing? It was hit or miss. I had a studio at home where I could work. But don't forget, a lot of that had to be working on reads. So did you spend a lot of your time on the the train reading or kind of fingering through parts or thinking about the music or... Well, some orchestral parts I would look at that way, but uh, I would say mostly I read the newspaper on the train, didn't look at the music. <laughs> In an age before iPods and iPhones, I guess. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. I kind of miss that, that sometimes. That's so interesting. Thanks for the, the insight into that. So there's another piece on here I wanted to ask you about that I found very interesting because it must have been one of the first kind of pieces like this that you encountered. It's the Mario Davidovsky piece, which is clarinet with instruments and recorded tape. Right. What was this like back in the 60s? If you hear it today, it sounds like it was written yesterday. Yeah, it's still fresh. Excellent composer. He had a certain style and sound, and he was uh, very de dedicated to what he was doing. Uh, the performance was interesting, as I think you might know that that one piece on this recording, other than the concerti, uh, was was conducted. This piece for clarinet, flute, violin, and cello, by and the conductor was a clarinet player, Efrain Gigi, who was the man that made the GG mouthpiece in those days. He claimed Efrain, Gigi, uh, his name was spelled G-U-I, G-U-I. I guess if you could pronounce it gooey, gooey, maybe, I don't know. But, they, but he had two Gs on the mouthpiece, and he claimed that the rubber mouthpiece was uh, unbreakable. He demonstrated it in, in Leon Rushnov's studio. He threw it against the wall, 
and immediately it broke. <laughs> and this was a hard rubber, you said? Yes. So it's kind of shattered, or did it break in half? or uh, No, a piece broke off. But that was the test, was to throw it against the wall. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, it was his doing that. Nobody did it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. I guess. That's hilarious. So this kind of repertoire, though, with the electronics, what was that like, and how was that rehearsed in those days? Because nowadays, I know that we would just put on the computer or the iPod or whatever, hook it up to the sound system, but... I imagine synchronizing an LP or something would be quite a bit more difficult. So what did you rehearse with and what did it look like? It was broken down to smaller elements, of course. Uh, it had method and the fact that it was conducted was a big help, I think, in that piece. The electric part was all pre-recorded, right? Nothing was live? Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. And you're right, the piece does still sound fresh. Do you think these sort of pieces that have pushed the boundaries... Um, We'll look back on them in the same way as the staples, like the Nielsen and... Domains of Boulez was considered, you know, very far out at the time, uh, but, it, but it sounds kind of tame today in a way. Do you think that it's surprising that electronic combinations with orchestra didn't become more involved over the years? It didn't catch on like other devices, I think. You don't hear a lot of uh, multiphonics also today, as you did, you know, uh, when it was more popular. There's another recording here, one of my favorite pieces, the Premier Rhapsody by Debussy. And this one's interesting to me because it's one of those pieces, one of the few that people rehearse with, because um, preparing for recitals, for example, in, in college, you rehearse with a piano and usually play your recital with a piano, but you're sort of trying to emulate the orchestra the Premier Rhapsody is actually the opposite. The orchestra part was written after the piano part. So I wanted to ask you about the contrast of performing both and, and which one you prefer. Well, I mean, the, the colors of the instruments in the orchestral version uh, really can't be duplicated by piano. There's a certain warmth of, of sound that you can only get with with the strings, you know. And actually, it was a very exciting time because it was my first... Uh, Recording as a soloist with the Philharmonic, the performances were in Carnegie Hall. sidebar about the, the Debussy. I have a, a, a program that's, that I have tr had framed of the first performance in America of the Debussy Rhapsody. It was the Philharmonic, conducted by uh, Joseph Stransky, who was music director. In the season of uh, 1912, I guess it was, uh, 11 or 12, I'm not sure. I have to, have to look at that. And the soloist was uh, Henry Leroy, who was the first clarinet player of the orchestra at that time. It said, first performance, new in America, under the uh, the heading for the for the Rhapsody. Wow, and when was that performance? 
I think it was uh, 1912. 1912. Okay, yeah. So I guess the piece was written in 1910, and then you're right. The competition must have been 11, and then I guess it came over to America pretty fast. Leroy, uh, his short bio was on that program page. Uh, he was born in Armentiers, I think in 1875 or something, something like that. So do you have any advice for players who are, are playing it with piano or orchestra on how to sort of create a contrast or ways it might be played differently? In a certain sense, it's, it's more difficult with piano than it is with uh, orchestra. Why is that? It's because of the blend and the moods they created are very, you know, different uh, with strings than they are just with piano. I think the chromatic textures come out better with the orchestra too. The piano version, I've, I've played it too, and I, I think that some of those sections, I don't want to say it kind of starts to sound like a bit of a wash, but it kind of does because the, the wall of sound from the piano is so homogenous. Yes, yes. Yeah, switching back and forth a fair bit. Yeah, a fair bit, yes. So another piece I wanted to ask you about was, of course, the Corigliano. Now, I didn't know this about the writing of this piece, but it sounds like he basically just disappeared to write it and knew that you would be able to play whatever he wrote, but then he sort of created this extraordinarily difficult piece. So what was your first impression upon seeing that? Well, I got each movement separate, and it was just sheer terror looking at the <laughs> at the first movement. But I, I think, uh, you know, he wanted privacy when he worked, and he didn't want anybody disturbing him. But nobody knew it, it, he was going to write such a large, serious piece. They thought it would be a light, short piece. And it turned out to be uh, like the rite of spring for clarinet and orchestra. You described the piece as a blast of colors at the beginning with, with almost no rhyme or reason to the notes. Right. It's completely condenser-like. And it's also very soft kind of playing, so it's almost like a more of a burbling kind of sound at the beginning. At the beginning, yes, inaudible. And, uh, of course, they, they, it went from that to very extreme uh, volumes, you know, uh, and gyrations and a lot of things like that. It, it used a huge orchestra. Everybody was used. Nobody had the week off. <laughs> How did you go about practicing that one? Because I don't even imagine a piano part existed at all. There was no piano reduction. So you never could rehearse it with a pianist. Or, everything had to be copied by hand. There was a copying uh, 
business on 72nd Street and Broadway in New York run by this distinguished man who had copied, I don't know, 200 operas in his day. And he had a staff that worked there. And and every page had to be done in pen and ink. And uh, it was a tedious kind of a thing. But they, he had some real genius uh, copyists uh, in that in his little company. And it was just artistic to look at, you know, uh, fantastic. And, uh, you know, with a piece like that, you you have to use a lot of imagination. The first movement is called Scadensis, you know, and there are no bar lines anywhere. There's a lot of signaling for conductor here and there, you know, little directional things, but uh, doesn't get into a classic sense until the second movement, you know, which is a completely different mood. It was a tribute to his father, who was concert, had been concertmaster of the Philharmonic for a long time. And uh, there's a beautiful duo in, in, in that uh, movement for, for, for the solo clarinet and a violin. A very moving thing. And then, and then he used the, that antiphonal uh, Gabrielli style in, in the last movement with, with instruments scattered about the hall, all the way up on top and then on the side, down the sides. And a tremendous amount of whoops in the French horns. That really woke everybody up in the hall. <laughs> <laughs> what did Bernstein say about it when he saw the score? He said to Johnny Corigliano, he said, you've written the test piece for conductor. <laughs> That's how he called it. I think the the most exciting night of my life was that premiere night, because they did it five times, you know, over the first 10 days or something. And that first, it was like a, a gala opening amount of, of, of a response from the audience and the press. It, it was amazing. So let's go back to that very first day, though, very first minute you sat down to learn that score. So, like, what did that look like? How, what was the first thing that you did? I was shook, completely shook up by, uh, by what I saw. And uh, I just grit my teeth and closed my eyes and wailed and started to, to get into it, I guess. Uh, maybe I was too, too busy with everything else that was going on with uh, performing that uh, I just had to go along with the flow. It's like jumping in, you know. It's like jumping in at the last moment for, for somebody that doesn't show up, you know. There's no time to, uh, to to look in any direction but forward. You look at, at the opening of that the dynamic starting from, from uh, zero, you know, and there's many notes. and the, There's no logical uh, sequence, you know. The notes are just flowing out. I guess somebody maybe who was very uh, fixated with uh, with uh, symmetry and so forth. Maybe they they figure out a way of playing uh, four notes here and eight notes there. You know what I mean? In the in the, in the whole picture of things, instead of making it the effect that he wanted, freedom in in performance. Uh, I don't know if you can teach that. Do you think students in this day and age are too rigid in their practice then? I mean, me, for example, if I had a piece like that, I, I think I'd have a very structured way of breaking down how I might look at it. But maybe in reality, I just need to do it. The thing is, how, however you work, when it comes time to, to play it for, for people, uh, you want it to sound uh, fresh and you want it to sound uh, improvisational and and uh, try to draw, draw the meaning of what he had instead of just four square and marching, you know. Yeah, I guess it's that's the difficulty of this art form is that you want to practice till it's perfect, but once it's perfect, you need to keep it fresh. Yeah, some things uh, uh, are easier to have perfect, though. 
easier perfect than fresh you mean yes of course when you think of some some pieces that that are uh, very rhythmically even and one can learn each note and and get it at a certain speed and and that would certainly accomplish uh, that kind of a piece but uh, this piece was very very much uh, personal it was free it was hallucinatory you know it was just a wild dream you know you have to startle things startle people sometimes or you have to shake them or, or in a performance one tries to to give something that uh, will surprise and will excite you know in that kind of a writing of course you, you wouldn't do it in a in a lullaby but uh, that's more structured so you've mentioned this kind of spontaneity before on the podcast here even did you ever like practice mindfulness or like meditation or something like that to try and gain this sort of awareness of the now or it's just a characteristic that you have well, I guess it was just my way because uh, I didn't really uh, know much about uh, psychology or meditation at that time. Uh, of course, it, they, were, they were wonderful items, but, uh, you know, we didn't have much of that in Brooklyn. Are there any resources in the world today that you feel like would have accelerated your career back in those days? I mean, I feel like kids nowadays have everything at their fingertips and yet aren't reaching as far somehow. You have to let the young find their own way and not to to set too many rules because uh, when when you're very young you, you don't take so many things to heart and the danger is you become very four square and 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 not free you know it's a performing uh, situation you know you have to you have to have freedom uh, of course solo playing i'm not speaking of orchestral playing so to speak but there the only one that's in, that has that right is the conductor they can be as wild as they want, you know. At this point in the show, I would normally make the next questions exclusive to Patreon backers, but since this took me so long to get out, sort of as an apology to the community, I want to just provide them for free here today. Also, I want to give you a bit of a preview for those new listeners as to what this is actually like. So I do this on most episodes, and if you're a Patreon backer at clarinet.com slash subscribe, you get access not only to these extended bonus content episodes, but also to ad-free versions of the show. And you can listen on a regular podcast player just like you're doing now. So if you're interested, please consider supporting the show from as little as $1 a month. It makes a huge difference. And you can do this at clarinet.com slash subscribe. While we're here, I'd like to just take a moment and thank our other sponsors. Of course, we've got Encoda. It's kind of like Netflix or Spotify, but for sheet music. And you can get a free trial at encoda.com. That's N-K-O-D-A dot com. Of course, we also have Legere Reads. These are so fantastic, especially for a climate like where I live, where it's very cold and unpredictable one day, and then the next it's beautiful outside. You think it was summer, just like today. It's it's March, uh, I think it's the about 13, 14 degrees outside. What is that in, in Fahrenheit? I guess I don't even know. But, um, you know, tomorrow it's going to snow. We're going to have a blizzard. So what I love about Legere Reads is they're super consistent and they work in all types of weather and all types of humidity and you can just count on your reads. So check them out at Legere.com. That's L-E-G-E-R-E.com. And last but not least, we have Bakun Musical Services. If you're listening to this show in Canada, you'll be thrilled to learn that they just launched their new Canadian store. Now, this means that there's now pricing in Canadian dollars, so you don't have to worry about that pesky U.S. exchange rate, which, man, U.S. shoppers just don't understand, but it's like 35% now, so it's really, really high. Um, but this makes it a lot easier to shop for the Bakun products in our home country here. So, of course, many Bakun products are manufactured right in Vancouver, British Columbia, 
and it's great to be able to shop in our local currency. So all you have to do is check that out at bakunmusical.com and it will automatically figure out which which country you're living in and direct you to the appropriate store. Don't forget, no matter where you're shopping from, that you can save 10% on your next accessory purchase at bakunmusical.com. And uh, one last thing, they do they just launched a new mouthpiece. So you can check out the Vocalese CG, which is kind of like a clear version of their Vocalese mouthpiece as well. So go ahead and check that out. Don't forget, you can save 10% with code CLARENEAT at checkout. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast and uh, on to the bonus lightning round with Stanley Drucker. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show again. Before we wrap up, I, I do want to ask you a couple additional questions just about sort of advice for younger generations and things. Do you have any specific sort of comments on how to have a great career and a successful career, not just from a, um, someone else's standpoint, but from your own perspective? You have to be focused on what you're doing and, and never say no to anything. And don't, don't be late. R- arrive with plenty of time to be ready. Who's a composer that you wish wrote for clarinet but never did? Or maybe someone during your lifetime even who you, who you wish had written for you? Well, in the, in the modern age, I was certainly I would have loved to get a concerto written by Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I know he was, he was a pretty busy guy at the time. A little bit uh, busy. A <laughs> yeah. little bit, a little bit busy. <laughs> With the clarinet started coming in at the end of the Haydn era, and uh, it was very primitive at the time, but, but you could see what was happening, you know, and evolving. And uh, we've got a lot of music. The clarinet has, has a lot of music written for it. And, and I'd say that a, a lot of the early 20th century pieces are great you know the the early 20th century american composers who is your favorite modern composer of the last like 15 20 years i like of course corigliano was was one of my favorite he he, he actually wrote a lot of uh, beautiful things everybody had something to say if 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 a piece is still here it was worthy of of hearing mm, that's an interesting way of looking at it was there more pieces back then that were played and then and then shelved? Uh, a lot of orchestral music too. I mean, you know, Roy Harris, for instance, or or Copeland, or William Schumann, uh, people like that. They 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 were they had a certain popularity for a while, and they, you don't hear much of them. Uh, that American school was really really very good. Do you think that? Orchestras today need to do a better job of delving into some of the undiscovered works, or I mean, many of them are still really focused on the big names to draw people in. It's not easy because it's a question of of audience size and and giving the audience, you know, something to to like and to remember. But the major centers do a pretty good job. Everything has some kind of an audience for it. Do you have any advice for clarinetists on developing relationships with composers and and getting new music written for the instrument? Well, I think that's a good idea. Composers want to have their pieces played. So I'd say uh, give them a chance. Uh, Do do a piece that they've written. And and I I think it's a very good idea. Do you think that that process is normally initiated by the player or by the composer? Well, some composers would definitely want their pieces played. There's no doubt about that. The problem is that there are not enough venues for playing them. But, but with the university system, 
that would be one avenue to uh, to traverse because uh, there they have arts departments and 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 they have concert halls and recital halls. I mean, th- this is where you have to have the laboratory of new things uh, perfected. Where do you see orchestral music going in the future? Oh, I think it's, it'll always have the same audience it has. It's not going to have the audience of rock and roll, uh, but it's got this good, solid bass worldwide, and it'll always have that bass. I always said uh, there's an audience for everything, but uh, some of the audiences are bigger for certain things. That's very true. From the perspective of innovation, I mean, in the 60s, for example, you saw some some of those pre-recorded tape type pieces coming up and what what do you think is is left or can be added you know uh, i remember the boulez years uh, he, he was fantastic with new things fresh things and and established works that didn't get enough hearing you have to have a champion somebody has to champion that totally well, thank you, Stanley, so much again for coming on the podcast. This is our, our third conversation. And I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to speak with me, not one, not two, but three times. Um, I'm going to direct listeners, of course, to the Digital Force website to pick up signed copies of your new disc set. Oh, gr- great. Thank you very much, John. And I do hope that this becomes a staple on every Clanetta shelf because it's just some really great recordings and they are all beautifully assembled into a secondary collection to go with the original heritage collection before we go i'd be remiss if i didn't ask if there was additional discs coming in this this collection well i i don't know i mean uh, i think jerry in his archive he might have other things that at this moment uh, it's still in the uh, thinking about stage well i was just thinking about your ten thousand concerts and i bet in a way that just scratches the surface of the number of actual concerts you played because that was just with the philharmonic so i mean even if we had let's say 20,000 concerts. I'm just doing some quick math here. Let's say they were an hour each only. That would be 840 days of constant listening to your concerts. I so, think that might be a bit <laughs> I think we've got room for a couple more discs if it's available. Sean, thank you very much. <laughs> you can tell the clarinet world I'm still having a good time. I think it sounds like it and we can, we can hear it. So uh, thank you again, Stanley, so much. And I hope to get the chance to talk to you again soon. Oh, uh, great. And don't shovel too much snow. <laughs> Actually, I don't have to because I live in a condo building now, so they're doing it for me. <laughs> okay. Talk soon. Thanks so much, Stanley. Bye-bye.